to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Well, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here in the front row. Another podcast episode for you. J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, director behind the scenes, as always, once again. And today, very special podcast. It's the voice of the Seahawks. No, not me. I'm UNCW. This is the Seattle Seahawks voice, Steve Rabel, longtime voice, who started as a player for the expansion Seattle Seahawks back in 1976, played with some of the greats in franchise history, including Hall of Famer Steve Largent. He shares some of those stories with us. And then the transition from player to broadcaster, and he's been the voice of the Seahawks since 2004, calling three Super Bowls, including a victory in 2013. And he shares a lot of stories with us, getting recruited by Lee Corso, playing, as we mentioned, with Steve Largent, Jim Zorn as well, and also broadcasting Beastquake with Marshawn Lynch. All that and more straight ahead. And, oh, yes, he also is responsible for the movie Rudy. Stay tuned for that story there alone. So all that and more coming up on this episode of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro, our special guest, the voice of the Seattle Seahawks, it's Steve Rabel. All right. Well, well Steve, first of all, thanks so much for taking uh, some time out of your busy schedule right in the middle of uh, an NFL season, which, uh, again, longtime voice of the Seattle Seahawks. And, uh, and again, we appreciate your time here tonight. Well, it's my pleasure. And, and we uh, are lucky right now because we start our bye week as of today. Uh, won the game against Jacksonville yesterday, which was a huge win. We needed to do that the way we've been playing lately. Uh, losing three straight, it just doesn't happen up here in Seattle very often. I think the last time was 2011. Uh, and the last time we lost three home games went all the way back to 1992. So it's um, – it's 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 good to now have a little bit of a break, even if we're not playing. You know, I don't obviously don't play anymore, but it's just nice to kind of get a break and not have to think too much about football for the next week. Well, let's talk about you playing because that's where it started for you. You're actually a former player now, broadcaster. Let's go back to to you in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where you you grew up. And uh, why was football the sport for you uh, that you really gravitated to? Because obviously, it's carried you a long way. Well, it's interesting, Mike, that you should bring that up because. I grew up in a, in a household where my father had been a semi-pro baseball player. And he played in the, I believe it was the Boston Braves organization, or I, th I think it was Braves at that time. Uh, there was also the Red Sox. But he played in, in a couple of minor league organizations around the country, and uh, mostly in the, in the East. And uh, he met my mom. He was also a musician. And so he was in the Army in, uh, in Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania, and he met my mom at a CYO dance, and they dated for about six months or so and got married. And, and pretty quickly he discovered that if he wanted to have a family, being an itinerant baseball player in the minor leagues was not a way to make it. So he ended up sticking with music, became a music superintendent of instruction for all, of, all the schools in the Louisville, Kentucky School District, which is where he's from and where I grew up. And so to grow up in a baseball family, one would have thought, but uh, football always was kind of the key for me. I loved it. I loved watching it on TV. I grew up in Louisville in the, in the 60s. So in the early to mid 60s, you know, we got one game a week on Sunday and it was almost always the Packers because they were the best team, obviously, in the NFL at the time. And so they were on TV almost every week. So it was between the Packers and the Cowboys and I hated the Cowboys. 
So um, I love watching the Packers. I knew everybody on that team, still kind of remember most of those names. And so when I had an opportunity to finally start playing football in the fifth grade, uh, at a we were Catholic, so uh, at the local Catholic school, I started playing football. Before I even knew which way to put on the athletic supporter, I was playing football and just loved it, loved everything about it. And so I did right on through, played at Trinity High School in Louisville, Kentucky, went to the state championships uh, when I was a junior, had a lot of guys hurt when I was a senior. We didn't have such a great record, but it ended up getting me a scholarship to uh, college, and that got me down to Georgia Tech. You were a wide receiver. Were you always a wide receiver growing up playing football? No. When I was a kid, uh, younger, I was a tailback and a defensive back. You know, in those days, you played both ways. And um, when I got to high school, uh, I actually didn't play my freshman year because I was a little small. I was like 5'4 and weighed about 100 pounds. And then between my sophomore and or freshman and sophomore years, I grew like six inches and put on uh, 50, 60 pounds. And so I immediately uh, decided that I wanted to get back into football. And they, uh, I was always fast. And so I played in those days what the position was a slot back. Now it would be kind of a wing inside of a wide receiver. So I played a slot back or a wide out position when I got to Trinity. We already had a couple of really good running backs. And um, played in, in that spot for my two years at Trinity and was able to show uh, coaches, prospective coaches in college, that not only could I run fast, I won the state championship as a senior in the 100, so I could run, I could catch, and I wasn't afraid to get inside and mix it up and block, and I played all the special teams. So um, Georgia Tech was a number one of the a number of schools that, uh, that took a look at me. Did you have an offer from Louisville? Was there any thought of staying close to home? I did, in fact, have an offer from Louisville. In fact, it's, it's a great story. Lee Corso was the coach at Louisville at the time. And um, they, uh, they had – the when, when we lost the state championship my junior year, the two stars of the team that beat us went to Louisville, quarterback and, and running back, and they were two really good football players. And those were the guys who were in charge of recruiting me and my – high school teammate at, uh, at Trinity to go to Louisville. And so in those days, you could do these kinds of things. So I say, I, I predicate everything by saying in those days. So they took us and they dumped us at a fraternity party and we ended up getting unfortunately blasted. Uh, and, uh, and the next day we were to meet with Coach Corso at the kind of, there's a, there was a restaurant near the campus that was the big, kind of the big place where everybody went for breakfast or whatever. So in the morning we were there having breakfast and I was not feeling very well. And my buddy Herb Scales, my teammate, uh, so he sat at the table and I kept excusing myself to run to the restroom. And finally we came back and, and Coach Corso literally had a letter of intent and he handed it to us and said, okay, we'd like you guys to come to Louisville. We want you to sign the documents now, sign the papers now. And, you know, I, I had gotten in pretty close with the guys from Georgia Tech. First of all, two of my former teammates at Trinity went to Georgia Tech. And it was all because of Jerry Glanville. You know the name Jerry Glanville. Well, Jerry recruited for Georgia Tech at the time. And so he was really hot on getting Herb and me both down there. And so my, uh, my buddy, my former teammate at Trinity called and said, if you sign anything, I'll come up there and, you know, kill you. So uh, we didn't sign. And then a couple of days later, National Signing Day or whenever it was, a month later, um, 
Jerry came up and my former teammate came up and they spent like the entire day in our house, in our living room until we signed the papers to go to Georgia Tech. And it was truly was like the best decision I ever made. Uh, aside from marrying my wife, it's the best decision I ever made. There you go. You have to put it, that in there. You're right. Just to sure. watches this. So Jerry Glanville won out over Lee Corso in the recruiting yeah. of Steve, Ra Steve Rabel as a, a wide receiver out of high school. That's a, that's yeah. a great story there. So, so you go to, to Georgia Tech, as you said, best decision you, you ever made there. What, what made it a good decision? Why go to Atlanta, get away from home and play for the Yellow Jackets? Well, it was just far enough away from home. Um, you know, it was a good six hour drive. Louisville was just, I'd have been right there. I'd have been right in the city. And, um, and quite frankly, uh, years later, I have known guys that were teammates of mine at Trinity who, A, never left, kind of never did anything, went to the same places that we did when we were in high school. And to me, that seemed a little constricting. So, uh, But uh, Notre Dame had been in touch with me, and so I filled out a lot of stuff for them. They didn't end up getting there at the very end, but I, you know, Catholic school and all that, it was a natural feeder to, to Notre Dame. Tulsa was very much in the mix. UK, interestingly, University of Kentucky never did. Uh, so Atlanta seemed just like the right place. And it was a big city, bigger than Louisville. But in those days, not certainly not outlandish, not crazy, and not the traffic that you have down there now. And Tech was such a great campus. I mean, I, when you get when you first get on a campus, it's, it's the older part of campus right there on the freeway. 75, 85 runs right through Atlanta. And so the oldest part of campus and the stadium and everything is right there. And I just thought that was so cool. And the tower, the Georgia Tech Tower, sits right up behind the stadium. Uh, and there was great tradition there. Um, oh, I forgot, Tennessee recruited me too, University of Tennessee. And I didn't like orange. So that pretty much ruled Tennessee out. So uh, I loved the campus. I loved the fact that I didn't have to live in, a, in a, an athletic dorm. I loved the thought that we were going to be able to live with uh, other student students and student athletes. And I knew I was going to get a great education, which is really why, you know, nowadays it may be different and it may, it's different obviously for every individual, but for me, a college scholarship meant getting uh, a degree. It meant getting a college education and it not costing my parents anything. And I could do what I loved to do, which was play football and run track. And they allowed me to do both at tech. So it just made a lot of sense. And I was always a good student in school, so I didn't have any issue with thinking that it wasn't gonna work out at Tech. And in fact, it worked out great. And we graduated, you know, Dean's List in industrial management and, and a far cry from the business I ended up in, but uh, still, it, it, it was, again, a, a really great decision and met a lot of lifelong friends and teammates who I still am in touch with. And, my buddy Herb and I went there and we both went all the way through four years and got our degrees. And uh, so it, it, it turned out to be, uh, again, really good. And we, we played good football. We played great teams. We played Southern Cal coming off their national championship. We played Notre Dame coming off their national championship. Um, we played Georgia every year. We played uh, Carolina, both of them, North Carolina, South Carolina, played Army and Navy, uh, and played Florida State. So we played a lot of really good football teams in that time. Yeah, you're there from 1972 to 76. During that time, I guess, the, the Liberty Bowl in 1972, were you a big part of that roster, that team in 72? No, uh, that was, uh, I was a, a freshman. And even though freshmen could play, that was the first year they got, they let freshmen back into play. 
And if you'll remember, well, you're too young to remember, but Archie Griffin was the big guy uh, at that time who as a freshman played for Ohio State and ended up winning uh, two Heismans uh, for his for his work at, uh, at uh, Ohio State. But no, I practiced with the varsity. We had a freshman team at Georgia Tech, uh, which was great because we played a wonderful schedule. We played six games. We played Tennessee and Alabama. And uh, gosh, who else did we play? Uh, Auburn, I think. Uh, so we played a great freshman schedule, but then I got to practice with the varsity. I didn't dress for the Liberty Bowl, uh, but uh, then I had you know three years of eligibility after that and played as a sophomore. Didn't start. I started a couple of games as a sophomore, but then started as a junior senior. We also had a problem wherein our coach, Bill Fulcher, uh, left after my sophomore season. So he was the coach. Actually, Bud Carson was the coach who recruited me with Glanville. And then Carson left before my freshman year. Fulcher came in. Fulcher left. And then Pepper Rogers came in my junior year. And that kind of changed things for us. Well, and you mentioned you played Notre Dame. And I was looking today. You're, you're, you had a prominent role in a game with Notre Dame. And if yeah. it's not for you, there's not a movie called Rudy that everybody is to. Bless you for checking on that and, and realizing that. Yeah, that was my senior year. We played Notre Dame up there. We played them my junior year uh, in Atlanta at Grant Field. And as I remember, I think they, they smacked us pretty good. Um, and then we played them my senior year at, uh, at uh, Notre Dame. And, yeah, we were getting beat. Uh, you know, we ran the wishbone under Pepper. And so the wish we were we ran up very well. We you know we came to within a couple of points of beating Auburn. We beat again teams like Florida State and and uh, those teams. So we, we we played pretty well. I think we were seven and four my senior year. So we go to Notre Dame, and um, the one way that you beat the wishbone is if you've got great athletes. If you've got defensive ends who can make the quarterback pitch the ball, which is, you know, the whole idea is you ride the fullback inside. If nobody is there to tackle him, you hand the ball to the fullback. Quarterback comes down the line of scrimmage, and he now makes a decision off the end man on the line of scrimmage. If that guy crashes to the quarterback, you pitch. And now the wide receiver, me or somebody else out there, is blocking that cornerback. And if the defensive end takes off and runs for the guy who's the pitch man, quarterback turns up field and runs. It's pretty simple, really, uh, and we ran it really well. Notre Dame had defensive ends that were good enough to make the quarterback pitch and then make the tackle out there on the tailback. So when you got guys like that, uh, you're, in, you're in trouble, and so we were. And so we, uh, we had a tough time of it that day, and we were down, I don't know, 24 to 3 or some awful score at the, at the end of the game, and we decided, Pepper decided, well, shoot, we might as well go ahead and start throwing the ball because we threw maybe five or six times a game, and I was almost always the guy who caught the ball. So um, we decided uh, we decide to, to air it out, and our quarterback was a guy named Rudy Allen. We had two quarterbacks. Rudy was the passing quarterback, and we had another guy who was sort of the running quarterback. So we're down near our own end of the field, our own end zone, and Rudy drops back and he just lays one out deep down the far sidelines. And so I'm, you know, I'm running like crazy down there. I can see this ball is going to go over my head. It's way deep. But Notre Dame is playing deep for the deep pass. So I had one shot at it and I was able to get to it just enough to knock it away from the defensive back so he doesn't intercept it, right? So if he intercepts, Notre Dame takes over 
and they take a knee for a couple of plays, a couple of knees, and the game is over. Because I broke up the pass, we get another play. And they send in Rudy to come in on and rush the passer. And Rudy gets through and tackles, along with a couple of other guys, is in on the tackle of our quarterback, Rudy Allen. And so a legend is born. And I, I, I must say, I don't remember them carrying him off the field. They may have. That may have been just for the movie. I don't remember the chanting in the stadium that everybody wanted Rudy into the game. We were just all so angry that we played poorly and didn't play well enough to beat Notre Dame, who was, a you know, again, a defending champion or a, a soon removed as being national champion. But uh, anyway, he, he, he made a, uh, you know, he made a play, and that was great for him. And and what a what a story though, because you know my first response was, hey, they they did a story about a guy who wouldn't have gotten on the field if I had to knock the ball down. But then I thought about it, and then I actually saw the movie, and I learned his story about where he came from and what he did to stay on that football team, and was literally a tackling dummy for four years. And I, I just I, so much respect uh, for him for doing that, and then you know writing a the story that became a book that became a movie. I mean. And now he's had a career on, you know, with, uh, with, uh, you know, going around and giving speaking engagements and uh, doing speeches on, on how to succeed and more power to him. I, I wouldn't mind seeing a little of that dough since I helped him get it, but uh, I'm only kidding. Uh, so yeah, that, that was my big claim to fame in the Rudy game. I knocked down a pass that, that uh, perhaps allowed him to come onto the field. Yeah, I was going to say, you, there's got to be some royalties coming your way somehow, somewhere, or a cameo in the movie. You didn't even get that out of the No, world. no, not even, not even. Although I must say, the, the movie makers did a good job in putting the Georgia Tech uniforms on us. They, they put all different names on the back because they didn't have to pay any of us. <laughs> so they put different names on there. But uh, they did a good job in that part of it anyway. Yeah, name, image, and likeness back in the 70s yeah. uh, for, for you in the, when that movie came out as well. So, so again, as you said, you, your last two years, things moved up, improved offensively for you. When did you think, when did you know that, okay, I'm getting to the point where I could, I could get drafted, I could go play professionally in the NFL? I was one of those guys that never, never really thought that that was going to be the case. Um, when you play a receiver position in the wishbone, you're not necessarily going to be pro material. Although the year I came out, uh, a receiver drafted ahead of me by the Cincinnati Bengals, a guy named Billy Brooks, and Oklahoma ran the wishbone, and he was a wishbone receiver. But he was a big, strong guy who could really run, and he was a, a much better athlete than I. So, you know, there were teams that were willing to take that chance on wishbone receivers. Uh, and, and again, because I played all the special teams, because I would block, um, I started and, – and because I ran fast. I mean, I ran a 9-500. Now, that's in 100 yards in those days, 9-5 uh, in college. And that won me a lot of track meets in college and or placed me in big meets in Auburn and, and LSU and, and those kind of things. So they could see I could run. Now – Running pass routes was a was a little bit of a different deal because we didn't have to run much in the way of pass routes uh, at uh, Georgia Tech uh, in the wishbone. But the teams that I talked to, and there were several of them, um, looked at me and said, "We can teach you how to do that. We can't teach you fast. We can't teach you speed. You've got that, and you've got pretty good size. And it's six two, six two and a half, weighed about two hundred pounds. So uh, I could take care of myself." And I played a lot of tight end at Georgia Tech, so I blocked a lot. 
And so I started hearing from teams. I didn't hear as much from the Seahawks. I heard a lot from Dallas. And I, uh, I met with the Cincinnati coaches. And the biggest one, coincidentally, was the Packers. Mm. My team, my childhood dream to play with the Packers. And so they sent a guy to check me out after I had knee surgery, by the way, my last second to last game of my senior year, I blew out my knee against Navy. And so a medial collateral ligament, some, some uh, cartilage and stuff. So they, in those days, you know, that was major surgery. Now you can do it arthroscopically. But so I had the big zipper on my knee from when they opened it up. And, but I got back in time, I injured my knee in November and I got back in time to start running indoor track at the uh, end of February and then was back out on the field starting to get myself in shape for outdoor track. And, and I got my time back down to about a nine, seven hundred. Um, and so the, the trainers and the coaches looked at that and said, well, that's pretty good. If you can come back from that, that quickly. So the Packers sent a guy down to check me out. And then they called me and said, listen, we want to fly you to green Bay and we want to have our doctors check your knee. So I'm thinking, uh, you know, listen, I can die and go to heaven. If I never play it down for green Bay by going to green Bay, and guess who the coach was at that time? Bart Starr. Oh, wow. Between him and – and uh, that's uh, who you watched growing up. Oh, Jimmy Taylor, the fullback. Paul Horning came from Louisville. So I watched Paul Horning. Willie Woods at safety. I mean, these were the guys. I just adored these guys. So anyway, I fly up there, and I, I they, their doctor checks me out. He says, yeah, you, your knee looks good. And I met with the general manager and talked to him. And then they said, okay, Coach Starr wants to meet with you. And he took me down to the locker room. So here I am in the locker room. This is, this is obviously in February or April, maybe, uh, March by this time. So the, the players aren't around. But here I am in the locker room, and there are all the name plates up of all the players uh, for Green Bay. And um, the other thing I noticed, and so we're talking, and I'm just like I'm in awe. And I noticed that on every locker there was attached – an ashtray. <laughs> and I thought, coach, and I asked him, I said, coach, are those ashtrays? And he says, yes, yeah, Steve, you know, from Alabama. Yes, yeah, Steve, this is a, you know, the, the men play this game up here and some men decide they want to have a smoke. And I said, well, okay. I, I, I understand, I guess. So, um, and then we talked for a long time and, and he eventually told me, he said, listen, if you're there in the third round, we want to draft you. Wow. Well, he said, we have to get two offensive linemen first. And, but if you're there in the third. And so I, I was just, it was just like a, a manna from heaven for me. So I go back to Atlanta and then I wait for the draft, which in those days was nothing like what happens today. I just, I, I had an apartment with my roommate and off campus. And uh, I just told my professors uh, the day before, listen, I'm not going to be in tomorrow because I have to wait by the phone. Because go figure, just the rotary phone was all we had in those days. It was barbaric. I don't know how we survived. <laughs> um, so uh, I had to wait for the phone call. And so I just sat in my, and there was no TV, no, none of that stuff. And it turned out my, the guy who was my, that I chose as my agent was Pepper Rogers' agent. And he introduced me, Pepper introduced me after the season was over. He said, I, this guy's really good and, and he'll, he'll treat you well and, and all that. So I said, okay. So uh, his name was Howard, and Howard was the guy who first called me because he saw it on the teletype uh, machine uh, in his office as they were following round by round of the draft before even the Seahawks called me. And he said, you're going to Seattle. And I said, what? 
Uh, I had talked to one of their scouts and I had filled out some paperwork for them, but I had really, they were not on the radar for me. And so a, I was, I was, uh, you know, ecstatic that I got drafted and it was a, I was a bonus pick at the end of the second round because the Seahawks were the expansion team in 76, us in Tampa. So we got a couple of extra picks and oh my God, that's an early picture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from Seahawk days. Uh, a, I had hair. B, I had still had a neck and had a mustache and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, and, and so the Seahawks used me to take, or used that bonus pick to take me. We had two picks. And the other guy was a guy named Sherman Smith, who was an option quarterback at Miami of Ohio. And they had drafted him thinking he would also be a receiver. As it turned out, once he got to training camp, they said, no, he's too good. We're going to put him in the backfield. And he became our, our starting quarterback and literally our bell cow in the backfield for the six years, seven years he played with the Seahawks. He blew his knee out one season, and we were lost without him, I think, 1980. But um, uh, And a great guy. and became a fabulous coach in the league. Coached with the Seahawks for years, coached at Tennessee. Uh, uh, he was, he was a, really, a really fine coach and a good friend still. So uh, they, they took me in that spot as a wide receiver. And the Packers, I think, ended up taking a receiver with that third pick. And unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, it wasn't me. And uh, that's how I ended up in Seattle. And as it turned out, you know, I mean, it all worked. There's one of those pictures um, in, in, my, in the old throwback uniform, although yeah. that was the uniform of the day at the time. They're talking about bringing that uniform back as a throwback for the Seahawks, um, and and they might do it, and and I hope they do. Um, but anyway, that was that was kind of what happened, and how I ended up with the Seahawks for six years, and and as it turned out, it could not have been a better place for me to to come and ply my trade of football because as an expansion team in '76, you have the benefit of time to build an organization. And this organization was going to build around young players. You know, we had a bunch of good old guys that we got in the expansion draft, guys like Mike Curtis and, and uh, uh, others uh, that, that came in and played with us for just a year uh, and gave us that kind of that be, being able to tide us over until the young guys were sort of ready to play. And, uh, and, and that's where we started. And then by our third year, which is I think where that second picture you just showed was my third year or fourth year, but we were the winningest expansion team in the history of the national football league at nine and seven in, uh, in 1978. And, and that was a, in large measure to our quarterback and, and our receiver, Steve Largent and, uh, and then our running back Sherman Smith. And then our defense was starting to kind of come together at the time. So it was a fun time for us. Uh, and then I, that was also the year 79 was the year I started to get involved in broadcasting uh, here in the city while I was playing. So all those things kind of came together. I did a lot of that <laughs> when I was a Seahawk, uh, congratulating Steve Largent for catching a touchdown. I was one of the best huggers in the league because I had a lot of practice. I, I have always joked that uh, that Largent would never have made the Hall of Fame or caught as many passes if I hadn't been the guy to clear out the middle of the field, run you know deep down the middle and take the safeties away so Steve could run in behind me there and make catches. But – we all know that that's not the case. He was, uh, at that time in the league, there were very few guys who, who could hold a candle to him in his ability to catch the football. 
He was a terrific route runner. Um, great teammate, just a great teammate, almost indestructible. He almost never missed a game in all of his years. Um, and when he did get hammered, he'd get right back up off the ground. And, you know, he wasn't very big, but he had football speed. He couldn't beat me in a, in a 40 yard dash, but he could outrun me to the post because he knew how to run a post route and to turn a defensive back around and, uh, and make him look silly trying to chase him. So he was the ultimate, uh, uh, pass receiver as far as I was concerned. And then, you know, after that, a few years after that, you had Jerry Rice come along and, and you, you know, you had great ones before that. I mean, the Paul Warfields of the world and all that, they were great wide receivers, but Largent by virtue of the fact that he's now in the pro football hall of fame, uh, showed everybody something. At one point, he owned most of the receiving records in the NFL, including the most touchdowns receiving 100, uh, which he got that record, I believe, by beating Don Hudson's record. Don Hudson, the old receiver at the Green Bay Packers back in the day. So um, there was a lot to be grateful for, in in my case, to be a part of the Seahawks. Uh, and then the, the best reason of all, I think I mentioned that already, was I met my wife on a blind date in Seattle, and we've been married 40 years now. So uh, I, I'm a blessed man, and will tell anybody that who will, who will listen. Yeah, you've been there a long time, like you said, from the, the start of that organization uh, in, in 76. And you mentioned, you know, Steve Largent again, and I've seen you call yourself the other Steve on that team, but yeah. you were actually drafted higher than him in 1976. You were 59th pick to Seattle. He was the 117th pick to the Oilers. He wasn't an, a, uh, an original Seahawk, but uh, you, you still have a little bragging rights there. I know he's in the Hall of Fame, but uh, you kind of still have that over him. Yeah, I think Hall of Fame trumps where we were drafted. And all you got to do is look around the National Football League and see where guys who were drafted high don't necessarily always pan out. Um, you know, I mean, I played six years. Uh, physically, I could have played longer, but I had this the opportunity for TV and radio that came up. And and knowing that, you know, I was never going to be a, a, a star or I was always going to be kind of that guy who could back up all those positions, wide outs, tight ends. I'd still played all the special teams. But, uh, yeah, Largent was, you know, he was one of those guys that what you couldn't measure was his heart and his, uh, his ability, his hands. Uh, he, he, what absolutely worked in his favor is while I was drafted by the Seahawks in 76, Steve's college coach was Jerry Rome at Tulsa, was the offensive coordinator for Steve at Tulsa. Jerry Rome knew what kind of receiver Steve was. He knew he could run pass routes around everybody. He knew he had football speed, and he knew he had these unbelievable hands. And though he wasn't that big and he didn't have a lot of speed, he also knew that he wasn't going to show up very high on those, especially those lists that scouts put together that are based on those sorts of things, size and speed and all that stuff. There was no combine in those days, so you had no way of knowing how many reps can a guy do. Nobody cared how many times I could bench press a hundred and whatever it was, 50 pounds or something. So that was one of the things that went against Steve and went in my favor. Jerry Rome was our offensive coordinator with Seattle. So he had taken the job from Tulsa and became our offensive coordinator. As soon as Houston put Steve out there at the end of training camp and said, you know, and you know how that works. They, they kind of put you out there to say, we're going to waive you. And then as soon as somebody expresses an interest, they pull you back and said, okay, now what do you want for him? Yeah. And so that's what happened. And the, they were going to waive Steve because Houston had a number of, of fine receivers, Billy White Shoes Johnson at the time and some other guys. And there just wasn't room 
you know, although Bum Phillips says to this day the worst mistake he ever made as a coach was letting Steve Largent go. And it was the best mistake he ever made as far as we're concerned. So the Seahawks then grabbed him for, I think, a fourth round something or a fifth round or something. I don't remember what they traded for him, but it was the best trade that the Seahawks ever made. Yeah, certainly was. I mean, one of the, as you said, legends there for the Seahawks. And 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 for you, uh, again, you're, you're there in 1981, I guess, was your last year. You had a collapsed lung. Did that kind of speed up, you know, your thoughts as you're injured? You're, you're out that year for most of the year and, and and think, OK, what's what's my future after football? Because you could you could see the light at the end of the tunnel there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got a collapsed lung in a preseason game. And so in those days, obviously, 16 game season, no bye weeks. So you you know you and you know you're going to be out eight weeks. When if you went on IR, uh, you were going to be out eight weeks at least. But they could bring you back after those eight. So I healed and I worked out and I was you know I I didn't practice every day with the team. But in those days, once you were feeling better, you could start practicing. Then it was a matter of are we going to activate you? And so they did. We had some one of the guys I can't remember got dinged up. And so they said, OK, last half of the season will activate you. And so I played the rest of the year. We had a young receiver that came in that year as a uh, as a rookie free agent, Paul Johns. And he had sort of taken over some of my duties as that third wide receiver. And they liked him and he was young. And, you know, I still got on the field. I still played. I still played special teams, did all those things. And then the last game of the season against Cleveland, uh, I running down covering a kick and my ankle just rolled out on me and I tore some ligaments in this, in my ankle. And so I spent, you know, the whole holidays, we didn't make the playoffs and I spent the holidays in a walking boot and all that. And and that was just a a real downer for me. So I, I stepped up the amount of work I did uh, as a broadcaster. Uh, I was filling in on Saturday nights on an all talk radio show, three hours a night, just wide open talk, all the sports. And I was doing it by myself. So here I am as a player uh, on the air, on radio. And I was also getting a a fair amount of work filling in on TV as a co-host on some local shows that we had here. Uh, And I was, I loved that. I just loved, I loved all those opportunities. So now we're moving down into the spring. My ankle is better. We get uh, a coach with the Seahawks, our first ever a coach that actually was a a, a guy who, who was a, a coach who physically trained us. You know, we had coaches for receiving and all that stuff, but we never had a guy that actually got us out there and, and ran us and all that. It was the trainers that did that stuff in those days. So this guy, Joe Vitt, who became a longtime coach in the National Football League, that was his first job in the NFL. And he killed us. I mean, all spring long, there were no rules about you couldn't be there or whatever. So he just beat us in the ground and it was great. I was in the best shape of my life. And then uh, in, we were getting ready to go to training camp. We didn't have mini camps or anything like that. We were getting ready to go to training camp in July and right, I guess it was right at the end of June or maybe the very beginning of July. uh, I was in Spokane playing in a charity golf tournament and I was ready to go to camp and my wife, Sharon, is at home. We've been married uh, about a year. And the broadcaster, the play-by-play guy for the Seahawks, a guy named Pete Gross, mm-hmm. who was the voice of the Seahawks from day one, called the house and said, uh, hey, Sharon, is Steve around? Well, no, he's over in Spokane. And uh, he said, well, let me just tell you what's going on here. He said, the, the guy who was the analyst, his analyst for Seahawks radio for the first six years, 
is leaving and going to the 49ers because he's originally from the Bay Area. He's going to the 49ers. He said, so we have an opening on the radio side. He said, I also know there's an opening on TV side for a sports reporter and part-time anchor, fill-in anchor for the main guy. And there is a TV magazine show called PM Magazine that is looking for a new host because the host just left. And we think at the station at Cairo TV and radio that he can fill all those roles. There's just one problem. He's going to have to quit playing football. <laughs> and so I, and Sharon said, well, uh, and Pete said something to the effect that, you know, we both know he's not going to be a Steve Largent, but he might be a pretty good broadcaster given half a chance. And this is an opportunity for him. So Sharon said, well, when do you need to know? And he said, I really like to know by maybe next week. And she said, well, if I have my way, I'll have him there on Monday. But let's let's see. She was ready for me to be done with football. So we talked about it, and um, it really made a lot of sense. That was a, a career. Football was was a job, and it was great fun. It was what I'd done since I was a kid. But there was certainly no longevity to it. And there was no guarantee I was going to be there, you know, in 82. But there was a guarantee that I was going to have a job in radio and television. And for the next however long, if it worked out, you know, I wanted it to last. So that's what we did. We retired and uh, we went right to work. And the, I went. I did end up going to training camp that year, except I went to cover the team <laughs> as opposed to play and practice. And I really liked that a lot better because training camp for us was in Cheney, Washington. You know Cheney. It's over outside of Spokane. And it's hot in the summer. And so I was over there, uh, you know, drinking lemonade on the sidelines while these guys that I played with are out there killing themselves. And I was just, enjoy yourselves, guys. And, uh, and that's, that's how we got into broadcasting and, and kind of was there until last year when we retired after 38 years at the station. Yeah, and a very long year, second act to you. So do you look back, do you know some of your numbers at 68 receptions? 1,017 yards, three touchdowns. Do you remember your touchdowns? Uh, and for, unfortunately, when you score – when you have so few highlights, you can tend to remember them. Um, yeah. And and uh, now, for, for anybody who's listening out there, and I know there, there are some sports fans who are listening, uh, let me preface everything by saying nobody threw the ball in those days like they throw it now. So, you know, my third year, I think, where, when we went to seven and nine, I had like 22 receptions. And our tight end had maybe 25 and Largent had maybe 50. That was a lot of throwing, you know, because we just didn't throw the ball that much. We ran a lot. Anyway, I sort of had to say that. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the big play was I caught an 80-yard touchdown against the Vikings uh, in Minnesota my rookie season. Wow. Uh, and what basically stands out about that is, you know, in the old days they used to put together a, a, a highlight film for every team. And so – I made the highlight film on that uh, play, and, and John Facenda, who was the voice of the NFL, the voice of God, actually said my name. You know, Jim Zong throws this 80-yard to rookie wide receiver Steve Rabel. Well, that was it. There again, I could die and go to heaven because uh, John Facenda said my name. So I scored on that one, and I, 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 oh, uh, there was a blocked punt, and I picked against the Packers, but we were playing in Milwaukee. And uh, Donnie Dufek, I think, blocked the punt, and I picked it up and ran it about 50 yards or something for a touchdown. So that was one. And I think I caught one in Miami against the Dolphins, and I caught a couple in preseason, which don't count. But, uh, 
Uh, yeah. Oh, no, I caught one in Oakland, too. That was all it had, three touchdowns? Because I know I caught one in Oakland. That was wrong. Maybe I caught my one. numbers are wrong. Then maybe my numbers yeah. are wrong here. Because I caught a touchdown in Oakland um, against the Raiders the day I got knocked unconscious. Hmm. Um, we were down there. We had beaten them in Seattle. This was in 78, I believe. Or maybe 79. Anyway, we're down there. And um, Jim Zorn will tell you, if you talk to Jim, the best corner route he has ever thrown was to me. And it was about a 35-yarder inside, got the strong safety leaning in, popped back out toward that front corner of the end zone. He laid it right up over the top. Perfect pass. And we score a touchdown. And so the game starts to come down to the end. And we're tied, for I think, 14 apiece in, in Oakland. And they're going nuts in Oakland. And I, so I had already caught a couple of other passes that day, and I caught that touchdown. And so late in the game, we're driving to try to score either the winning touchdown or a game-winning field goal. And I was running a crossing route. I was running from the slot position inside, and I ran this crossing route. The ball was a little behind me. I reached back, and uh, Jack Tatum uh, had obviously seen enough of me, and he hit me right in the ear hole. And that's the only thing I remember. Um, there you go. Uh, again, I was hugging somebody else, Sam, there. I get a hug on Sherman. Everybody else who scored on the planet uh, got a hug. But uh, so I, I – and this was it. This was the touchdown right there against Oakland. Where the hell did you – pardon me. Where the heck did you find all this stuff? He's my producer, JR. He's the best. Oh, JR. And that was the, the, the Vikings. Yeah. Golly, some of that stuff I hadn't seen in forever. Now, that's an old man walking on the sidelines at at, uh, at Lumen Field uh, where I get to uh, interview the, the general manager every week before the game. So, anyway, he, he, he just clobbers me uh, with a forearm, and that was that. I was out on the field. I'm, I was told later John Brody, who was broadcasting the game, who I got to know pretty well after all that was over, uh, after I got out of football and became a broadcaster myself, uh, Brody said – I started to get up, and he was saying, oh, Rabel got hit. He's starting to get up. No, he's down. And that was the end of that. So I, I spent – I don't remember anything else, and I spent the rest of the game on the sidelines. They took my helmet, uh, you know, after I came to. And ultimately what happened was we drive down, and Efren Herrera kicks the game-winning field goal with about 12 seconds left, and we beat the Raiders twice in one season. And I think that year – they might maybe that year or the next year they go to the Super Bowl. So they were, you know, Madden must have just torn the furniture apart in the locker room after we beat them down there. This third year team. So the the uh, the the kind of the coda on that story was, I don't remember anything. I come back, fly back with the team, and they take me to the hospital, and they check me in, and so they put wires on my head, and they had to check for concussion, you know. Back in the day, it was you get knocked out and oh, he got his bell rung, and you come back the next the next practice even. But the Seahawks were smart enough to know that man, I was out on the field. I, it was lights out, so they wanted to be sure to get a check. And I sure enough had a heck of a concussion, and they had the wires on me, and I spent the night in the hospital, and they were doing these cognitive tests. So that was that was a Monday that they that they let me out uh, Monday afternoon. Tuesday was the player's day off, so I wasn't going to go in on Tuesday. I'd already missed the films, the film session on Monday. And I had agreed to go to a, a friend's house for dinner on Monday night. It was a guy that I had gotten to know 
at one of the local radio stations that I did some work at. He was a salesman and I got to know him as, as it became a pretty good friend. And his wife and him invited me to come to dinner at their house. So I said, sure, well, here I am. I'm not feeling good. I got a headache and all, but I, I said, well, I, I made the commitment, so I'm gonna go. So I drove to the house and as it turned out, they invited one other single person. There were like three or four other couples, but one other single person was the friend, a friend of the wife. And so we met and we come to find out that this was a setup. They had, and the, the young lady that I met, who has been my wife now for 40 years, when she found out that this was a football player that she was coming to meet, she almost didn't come. Wow. She pulled out of, she pulled in the driveway and I had a little red sports car at the time. And she saw that red sports car and thought, I don't, I know I don't want to meet this person. He's a football player and he's got a red sports car. She was a business executive, single woman, business executive. So, you know, smart as a whip and uh, had been in school in Europe for a time. So a very well-educated person. And here's a football player who just got out of the hospital from a concussion. So, but she said, okay, I'll give it, I'll give him a chance. And so we, you know, we talked and we, we, we sort of hit it off and, and I asked her out again a couple of times. There was a, a movie premiere in Seattle uh, and a guy that I had gotten to know at one of the local TV stations said, would you like to go to this? You got to get a tux and invite somebody. So I invited Sharon and we rode in a limo and they went to the movie premiere and that was all fun and good. And so anyway, long story short, we, we started dating and, and pretty soon we, about, took about a year and a half for me to kind of come to my senses and say, you better marry her before something else bad happens. And so we got married and we've been married for 40 years. And, and uh, again, uh, coming to the Seahawks was a, a great opportunity. Meeting my wife was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, concussion or not, you remember that. So it must have been a yes. meeting. So there, there you go. You always yes. have that to, to exactly. share with her for exactly. sure. Well, again, you made that transition going to the broadcast side. You started as an analyst. You were the analyst on the broadcast for the Seahawks for, for 22 years. And then you transitioned to the, the voice of the Seahawks, 2004, I believe it was. Right. Ironically, the same year that, that I was became the, the voice of the Seahawks here at UNCW. But, By the way, congratulations on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a long run for both of us here. And uh, yeah. I haven't called call the Super Bowl, but uh, some championships. One of these days. For us. One of these days. There you go. There you go. But – you know, for you, what was it like making that transition then from analyst to to play by play? Because, you know, as a former player, yeah, analyst makes sense, but play by play maybe not as much, or you don't see it that often. Right. Uh, that was the last play by play guy I worked with before they actually uh, said, "Okay, it's if you can do it." It was. It was. Uh, I wasn't. I, I don't say I. I had started to uh, get tired of doing uh, the analyst job. But I knew how to do that job. You know, when you do it for a long time, 22 years, I always have to be reminded of that because it, it seems like it doesn't seem like it was that long that I was the analyst, but I, I was. And um, I felt like I really knew how to do that job. And there was not a ton of challenge to it. I mean, I prepared just like I prepared today for a game. But um, it, it became easier as the years went on. And we also went through a, a tough stretch. When I first started doing it, the, the analyst job, you know, Chuck Knox came in in 1983. Well, we took off and won a lot of football games under Chuck, and he won a lot of those games with guys who were my teammates. So I loved every minute of that that opportunity, those seasons, 
uh, to be around those guys because I felt like I could celebrate with them, you know, with Steve and uh, Dave Craig and Jacob Green, and Kenny Easley, and all those guys. So they won a lot. Of, they won a lot of football games. Then we hit kind of a, a dry patch there, uh, and uh, in the early '90s and mid '90s, it, it got really tough. And Chuck had left, and we went through a kind of a couple of different coaches. Uh, Tom Flores came up from from Oakland, and that didn't really work out. Uh, Dennis Erickson came up from Miami, and three seasons, and I think he was eight and eight, basically every season. So that didn't sort of work out. And um, then then uh, the Bearings, the owners of the team, Ken Bearing, a developer in California, uh, he couldn't get the the city to move on on building him a new stadium. So uh, he said, I'm moving the team to California. And he did. I mean, they literally packed up and moved to the Rams old facility in Anaheim after the Rams had moved to St. Louis. And uh, the league eventually told him, you got to go back because there's a contract. You have to take the team back. And what happened was uh, there were several local political officials who were really good friends of mine and good friends of the team who started making the inquiries to say, okay, how are we going to get this team to stay here in town and get new ownership? And that's when they went to Paul Allen and Paul Allen said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. I'll buy the team, but I'm going to make a deal with the community and all of the fans. And we're going to go in halves on a stadium, but we need a new stadium because the kingdom has done that. You know, the ceiling tiles were starting to fall. And so we had to get a new stadium. So they put it on the uh, ballot. Another reason why I love election nights. Um, they put it on the ballot and it was a close vote. In other words, if, if that doesn't go through, Paul doesn't buy the team and the team ends up in California. Mm. Wow. So it was a close vote. The eastern half of the state, a lot of the fans who thought, well, we'll never get over there to watch the game. So we're not going to pay an extra two cents on a sales tax of a $10 something or whatever. We don't want to do that. But it turned out we the, the vote went through and they got it. They built what started out as Seahawks Stadium and became what Quest Field and then CenturyLink Field and now Lumen Field. And uh, and Paul Allen was just the magnificent owner. We played in Husky Stadium for two seasons while they were building the stadium. And the guy who shepherded us through all that just went into the Ring of Honor yesterday, Mike Holmgren. And I got to know Mike, Sharon and I got to know Mike and Kathy very well. Uh, we both had places in Arizona. So we, during bye weeks and during vacation time, we'd meet up in Arizona and go to dinner and, and see each other. And, and uh, it, was, it was just great. And I, I was a part of the program yesterday. I, down on the field, get to introduce uh, Mike and kind of introduce the video and all that that is. As, and being the voice of, as you know, you get to do fun things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And being such a him being such a good friend, it, it was it meant a lot to me to be there on the podium and, and to be able to do that. So Mike shepherded us through and took us to the playoffs and then a Super Bowl. And then, you know, the kind of the light dimmed on his reign after 10 years and had one year, kind of an off year. And then Pete and John came in and, yo, here we go. And we've been on a, we've been on a run ever since. And it has been. It has been great, and I wouldn't again. I wouldn't change things for anything, even if I could. Well, let's go back a second for the again the start in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. That that first Super Bowl appearance, and it kind of right. started with a quarterback as well, who was in, in the Ring of Honor the week before, right. uh, Matt Hasselbeck, and obviously you had the MVP and Sean Alexander as well. But again, 
you're calling a game in the Super Bowl, your second year as the voice of the Seahawks. What are you thinking at that point? Well, I'm, I'm just hoping I don't screw something up, A. Uh, but I had, you know, I'd now had two full seasons under my belt as play-by-play guy. Plus, at the time, I was working with Warren Moon. And Warren is terrific. Warren has forgotten more football than I'll ever know. So at first I was afraid as when I moved over to do play-by-play that I would, you know, end up doing too much and doing some of the analyst job too. We, Warren and I have known each other for 20 plus years anyway, 25 years. And going back to his playing days uh, in, in Houston and, and, and with the Seahawks when he was a player here with us for a couple of seasons. And uh, he, he turned out to be just the perfect uh, uh, guy for me to be able to bounce stuff off of. A, because I could ask him anything. B, he could always he, – he knew so much about the defenses anyway. And certainly as a quarterback, he, he knew everything that was going on. And the other thing I'll tell you about Warren is, is when, when we go down onto the field before the game, as you, as you know, you always do. You go down, you walk around, you have, get some one last – note from a coach or something from the offensive coordinator, you know, here's what we're going to do the first couple of plays. And then maybe if you know somebody on the other sidelines, you walk across and you talk to them. And Warren is the only guy I've ever been around who all the other players and coaches on the other sideline gravitate to him. They come to him to say hi. When you're standing on the field in Green Bay and Brett Favre runs over to say hi to the guy you're standing there with, you know you're standing with royalty. And everybody did that. Every Manning, every Favre, every Montana. I mean, it was like that. So he was great to work with. And uh, that Super Bowl game, you know, in Detroit against the Steelers, we were just, um, we were aghast because we knew we had the best team that day. And all the Seahawks players knew it and all the coaches knew it. They were the better team. And uh, 13-3 and that season had the league's MVP, as you mentioned, in Sean Alexander. Nobody had stopped our running game, and because of that, nobody could stop Matthew. And our defense was a heck of a lot better than anybody gave us credit for. And we picked that day to have a lousy game. We dropped passes. We made mistakes. But more than that, you know, I mean, we, we got jobbed by the officials. And, I, you know, they didn't do it purposely. They just had a really bad day. As Bill Levy, who was the referee in that game, said several years later, he said, that was not our finest hour. We made mistakes. They sure did. And in fact, I don't know if you heard Mike heard his comments yesterday or saw anything, mm-hmm. his last words at the podium. And, you know, he had a number of applause lines in there, thanking everybody and what have you. But he said, and finally, I want to end with this. You 12s, obviously the 12s are our fans. You 12s deserve that Super Bowl banner hanging here in the rafters. And I know you love it applause, pause, and there should be two of them. <laughs> Thank you, good night. And he walks off. It was like the mic drop. Yes. And it was great. The fans went nuts. And they were right. There should be two of them yeah. up there. Actually, there should be three. If, you know, we don't have the last play or the interception against us in Arizona against the Patriots, there are three bang- banners hanging there instead of just the one. But – Listen, that's why you play the game because, you know, until there's all zeros up there, you never know how it's going to end. But uh, it, that was a treat being able to do that game in Detroit. Unfortunately, we lost the game. Uh, then we go back to uh, New York 
And uh, that was a big week because, uh, well, for me, being both TV news anchor, which is what I've been, was for 30 years at the station, not sports. I did sports early, but I then became the news anchor. And so I went back there and anchored news and did specials every single night of the week from the top of CBS at West 57th in Midtown Manhattan. And it was about 20 degrees. This is February in New York City. And we're on the roof outside at CBS. And the only blessing that whole week was we did we, a lot of great stories in the prep. And again, that was one of those games where we knew we were the better team. We had no doubt that we were the best team in the league, best defense in the history of the National Football League. And, and then, you know, you got Russell Wilson, who is quickly becoming, you know, a household word as a quarterback. And, yeah, Peyton Manning on the other sideline, I get it, a lot of offense. But I've always been a believer, even as an offensive player, that a great defense trumps a, a great offense, which it did that night. So the game day comes around, and it suddenly jumps up to 52 degrees. Yeah. And it could not have been a better night for football. We go out there and just just hand them their hats. I mean, beat them every way you can beat them on special teams, on on offense, on defense. They just didn't know what hit them. And um, I'm often asked, "What's your what's what's the best play call you ever had?" And I always tell them, being able to say twelves. Uh, you know, they're bringing the trophy home. Your Seahawks are Super Bowl champions. That's the best play I ever called. Unfortunately, I had to wait till right at the very end because I you don't want to jinx it by saying it, even with a lead of like 43 to six or 10 or whatever it was. Um, but it was it was a great it was a great game and a great opportunity. And I as a play by play guy, I highly recommend it to you when you have the opportunity to do a Super Bowl. Take that opportunity because there's just no other game like it. Uh, it, it. There's so much to it. There's so so much before and then after and. And then the following year, same thing. You know, we're, we're down in Arizona, Glendale. Sharon and I owned a place in Scottsdale for 20 years. And so we got to go down and stay at our place in Scottsdale. And I'd go back and forth doing my work all week long. And you're doing the game and we're, we're blowing them out. I mean, we're playing really great football in the first half. Marshawn is, is going great guns. And they don't really make a, a real play till, he, till the second half. And, and we lose two guys. We lost our safety. And we lost our defensive end in that game. And because of that, we had two, two guys, backups in there, and we suddenly couldn't get any pressure on Brady, and he starts bringing them back. And they start moving up and down the field and have a couple of touchdown catches. And so it comes down to that play. And, you know, I, I'm asked that question. That's the second most asked question. What's your favorite play? And why did you run the foot? Why did you throw the football on that play? And I, I've told everybody that, the Patriots did it about five plays or two series before us. They ran the very same thing and scored. And um, uh, the odds were with us if you execute it. And we didn't execute the play. The guy who was supposed to kind of shield off the other defender didn't do a very good job. And I always questioned the receiver we had running the pass route was not Doug Baldwin or it wasn't Jermaine Curse. It was like the number four receiver. And he, he just wasn't ready for what was about to happen to him. And so he gets knocked off the ball, and Malcolm Brown intercepts it. And Tom Brady sounds like his wife screaming on the sidelines uh, after that. And that's it. That's the game. And we're all just left stunned. I mean, absolutely stunned. Sharon, Sharon was sitting. My wife was sitting in the stands down in front of where our, our broadcast position was uh, there at the field, which is now State Farm Field in, in Glendale. 
And she's like six rows up from that front corner of the end zone where the interception happened. And I looked down. The first thing I did was look down. And the people, there was a young lady who was standing right next to her who, whose husband is an employer, uh, employee of the Seahawks. And she was just crying. I mean, she got hysterical. And every other person in that section had their hands on their heads going like this. What just happened? And, um, you know, unfortunately, Sharon's been around a lot of football in our 40 years of marriage. So she's seen things like that. She was in Detroit for the Super Bowl game, and she saw that. So uh, she she knew how to take it and knew how to help those around her who need, who needed immediate mental and emotional assistance. Um, which is one of the great things about being married to somebody who's been around a lot of football in their careers. Um, but that was a tough one. That was a tough one. And, you know, we've not gotten back there since. And yeah. Russell's not getting any younger, nor am I, and nor is Pete. Uh, and this year was kind of the one we were thinking that this might be the one. And, boy, we start out by just – well, we start out by beating Indianapolis back there, and now we've kind of stunk up the joint until yesterday, coming in yesterday at 2-5 and five and – Maybe we sort of got back on track. We beat a Jacksonville team that wasn't a great team uh, and, they, you know, rookie quarterback, and he made some mistakes. But, you know, I think hopefully we'll get some guys back. Russell will come back off the injured list here quickly, I hope. Yeah, as a Seahawks fan, I hope as well. But, you know, and again, I guess you could say you're a Seahawks fan because you were there from the very beginning as a player and now as a broadcaster. Is it is it hard to separate yourself from, from that and, and – and be able to, you know, stay a little bit down the middle. Obviously, if you're listening to your broadcast, people know you more or less have a rooting interest in Seattle, but I'm sure you try to stay as middle of the road as maybe you can as well. Is that, is that difficult at times? You know where it got difficult, Mike, was, was when I had to put my other hat on for those 30-plus years and be the news anchor mm-hmm. because there were also stories that were news stories that came out of the football uh, offices at uh, at. Renton, uh, where the Seahawks are located. And some of them had to do with players who got into trouble. Some of it had to do with going all the way back to when the team was about to move and, uh, and everything in between. And so there I had to sort of, yes, that's what I did. Uh, there I sort of had to put that hat on, that news hat, and sort of play it more down the middle. Uh, there were, I, I can't remember if there were any stories that the station, the, the, our news department where I was the anchor, um, that said, you know, we're going to pull you off this story. We don't, we're not going to use you on this story because we don't know quite. They never did that to me. And, uh, and I always tried, I was always straight with them and straight with our, our viewers. But I also didn't have an opinion. I'm a news guy in those roles. I'm just reporting the news. Today, news has really kind of stretched that gamut of, of news and, and, and opinion and, showmanship and all that stuff. That's, I didn't learn it. I didn't learn the business from those kind of guys. And so I was never going to be like that. And um, when we were talking football on the radio, when I was doing my job as the play-by-play guy, yes, I want the Seahawks to win. And I have gotten, I've gotten a lot of great, uh, you know, there've been a lot of great emails and stuff on Twitter, people saying, Hey, great job. And I love listening to you and all that. And there are those who say, ah, you know, you're a homer and all that. Guilty. Uh, you know, I, I am. You are too. For your, You want your team yeah. to win. I want our guys to win. Yeah. I also they sound to, better when they win, right? Exactly. And I also try to be honest enough to say, you know, 
we stunk up the joint. We didn't play well enough. Our offense has got to do more. We've got to get our running game back. We cannot let Geno get sacked five times, ten times in two games. Can't do it. So, you you know, you, you have to be honest to keep that credibility with the listeners. But I was never a good enough football player to say what a lousy job or what a lousy player these guys are. I, I'm never going to say that. But I'll say as a whole what they're not doing right, what they need to do better as a group, what you need to do better. And, and I, think, I think to some extent that has gained me a, a, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, credibility in the, in the locker room and certainly with the coaches and the, and the staff over there that they know I'm going to be honest in that way and, uh, and not try to not, certainly not rip the guys that I want to see do well. Well, in 2019, you were honored uh, Washington uh, Sports Hall of Fame that you were inducted into uh, in the class that included King Griffey Jr. as well. Uh, what does an honor like that uh, mean to you and, and, and say to you that, you know, about the impact you've had in the Pacific Northwest? Where, you know, again, you've spent so much time there, but you're not from there originally. Right. Well, we certainly feel like we're, you know, we're natives up here. I've been here way longer than I was anyplace else. Um, Louisville or Atlanta. We've been out here ever since. And, uh, you know, we, we, like I said, out here and played and married and had a career, two careers, and, and now kind of winding down into just one. Um, but it, it, it means a lot that, that the folks out here, the viewers, the listeners, the 12s, uh, the, the people who turn to our television station, KRO, for all those years, that that they that they respected me enough to say, hey, we believe you when you tell us the news, just like we believe you when you tell us about the Seahawks on Sunday. Not a lot of guys have have gotten that opportunity to to, to kind of tread both those areas to be news, hard news anchor, and then uh, the uh, the other stuff, the football stuff. That's that award by the by, and that's my bride Sharon. And as you can probably guess, it was a drizzly day in Seattle, which we know a lot about. There, it's raining on the on the plaque, which actually I think is on the wall behind me right now. Um, but uh, it, it it has been a real honor, and I and I mean that, and a blessing to be able to do this for this long, and to to uh, to have the the viewers and the listeners say, yeah. Uh, we trust you. We believe you, and um, and we appreciate what you do uh, every night, whether it's four newscasts a day, five days a week, or whether it's every Sunday uh, on the radio uh, broadcasting a football game. And and they accepted us uh, into the community. Sharon and I have done a lot of things in the community, charity wise, and we're very proud of that. And um, I, I, I think it's one of the reasons why we've been so accepted here for so many years is that we've always turned up at these events. So we see so many people at uh, charity events, whether they're walks or banquets or you name it, we've sort of done it. And uh, uh, it, it's been a great blessing for us to have been able to be a part of, of that in this community. This is the Northwest is a, is a, a remarkable place. And I've been so so just proud and blessed to be here all these years. So many great people. We've met so many lifelong friends, teammates that are still close friends, and others who have become, uh, you know, very very close to us over the years. Uh, it was Mike. One of the things that Mike said yesterday, Holmgren, in his comments, and he made he always makes it a point to mention uh, Kathy and I. We live here. 
we settled here. We had a chance to go a lot of places. You know, he's originally from the Bay Area. They both are. They have cabins in the mountains outside of San Francisco. They, um, I don't think he was ever going to stay in Green Bay. But, you know, they loved it here in the, in the Northwest, and they have stayed. They've been permanent residents long after his coaching career here ended. So there's something about this place that if you can deal with the gray skies for about six, seven months a year and the drizzle, that uh, the weather is just one part of it. It's just it's culturally a wonderful, diverse uh, city, and, uh, and they love their sports. The Kraken are here now playing in the NHL, and oh, my God, you'd have thought – the, the, you know, the, the hand of the Lord has come down and blessed uh, hockey fans here because they are just jamming uh, Climate Pledge Arena now. And it's so great because now with that arena, we're going to get the Sonics back at some point, maybe sooner rather than later. And some of my closest friends, we talk about friends out here, are guys who played on those Sonics teams, the championship teams, Freddie Brown and Gus Williams and Jack Sigma. Those are great friends of ours and always have been. So uh, I know that if, in fact, we get when we get Sonics back, there's going to be a big party. And Sharon and I will be there with Fred and Gus and all those guys welcoming the Sonics team back. And, and that'll be a, a great day for this for this city. So will that be a, a holy catfish moment if they get them back? <laughs> I know that's kind of one of your, your, your catchphrases. Uh, tell us about that and how that came about. Well, I haven't had a chance to use it much this year. In fact, I don't think we've had a holy catfish yet this year. And that's what sort of makes it special. I joke about it. But uh, it's got to be a pretty big play to be a holy catfish. It's got to be something special. Um, and we haven't done enough special this year. When you're two and five or three and five now, you're, you're, you're still kind of scratching to get back to that specialness, those special places. But, yeah, uh, being, you know, growing up in Louisville and then going to school at Georgia Tech, uh, we had I had teammates at Georgia Tech who were from downstate in, in Georgia, and I mean further downstate than Macon, and I, places that Jerry Glanville used to say they had to pump in sunlight. They were so far out in the woods. So I'm sure somewhere along the lines I heard somebody say that because, you know, as a play-by-play guy, there are times you really want to say, like, holy something, and you you can't. Um, if this were – if we were doing it on a podcast or if we were doing it on – streaming somewhere yeah i could probably get away with it but no not not on the radio or tv so i don't remember where it came out where i first where i first did it but it just it just came out holy catfish and as an analyst or or play by play 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 guy as play by play and it was obviously it was a big touchdown play or something and and i'm guessing it probably happened back in the the first super bowl days you know, back in the in the Holmgren era, but I don't even really remember. It just did, and so suddenly it became this thing. And and I, I somebody as a present for doing some big charity thing we did one time gave me this big framed poster of a, a piece of art of a catfish with a crown on, and or no, a catfish with the you know the Pope's hat. That big, tall Pope hat was on a catfish. So holy catfish. And um, uh, so that was, I guess it was an honor. Happily, I don't have space in the house for it. So, But but it was it was a nice piece. Uh, so, yeah, it, it came out. And so that will come out uh, on a big touchdown once in a while. And uh, uh, but you got to save it for just those moments. What's yours? What's your big what's your big call? I don't really have one to be honest with you. Um, again, we don't have football here. We have basketball. That's that's right. my main sport. 
Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm more of a wow kind of guy and yeah. Yeah. I'm not a catchphrasey kind of guy. You, 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 yeah. You've taken, you've, you've got a good one. Uh, that's that, and, and that was just dumb luck. I, I've, I've watched, and this is a true story, I, I will not reveal names, but broad, a broadcast uh, guy who, who was really very good, really very good. But I, I was over talking to him in the booth one day, and he was writing some things down. I thought he was just making a few notes. And I said, if you need any other notes, just let me know. I can, I can give you. He said, oh, I'm just writing down a couple of my ad libs. I said, what? <laughs> I said, is it? And that's what ad lib is, is you, you don't know it until it comes out of your mouth. And he said, oh, no. I said, I like to be very specific. So I, I try to write down a couple of, of ad libs for these big plays. And I thought, well, okay, that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, but I've never been able to do that. I've never been able to write something down. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, as you know, when you, when you do so many games, you have kind of a rhythm of how you start the broadcast. We have a very set kind of idea of how we get through from one thing to another, keys to the game and this and the injury report and all those things. So I don't script any of that stuff. The only time I script is when I'm doing my open mm-hmm. prior to like an NFC championship game or the Super Bowl. It's the only time I've actually taken time to sit down and write out my thoughts about what this means to be at this specific game. And I'm glad I do because they oftentimes, some of those words end up on those highlight films mm-hmm. when you're you know, rolling into the start of a Super Bowl or an NFC championship uh, and that NFL films will pick up on it and they'll, they'll use some of those things. So you want to be precise in those ways. And that's when I, that's when I'll take the time to sit down and do about 20 seconds, 30 seconds of an open and, you know, not try to make, remember because we're on radio, as you know, um, so you can't be, you're not writing to pictures. So you have to be very precise in the words you use. And, and I, I, I try to do that. And the rest of it is just whatever falls out of my face because of a play, good, bad, or indifferent. And I, I mean, I've, I've let loose with, um, guys are making a mistake on the field and and I see the penalty flag come out I see a guy come like shove somebody when they're already out of bounds and here comes the 15 yard you know unsportsmanlike conduct and I you know oh no Bruce don't do that you know I mean I, I end up doing that on the air and so my colleagues at the radio station that ends up following me all week long uh and Steve Rabel had something interesting to say oh Bruce don't do that so it's it, that part of it is fun, and if you you know if you do this long enough, you'll end up having some of those that are yes. that that are either turn into catchphrases or that you wish you could kind of take back. You said something that said, "Well, that's so stupid. I wish I hadn't said that." Yeah, as you say, you've been blessed to be in a lot of positions to call big games, and the, the last thing you want to do is is screw it up. All of us, <laughs> yes. all of us. Uh, we'll leave on this. Um, I want to talk. Uh, about the Beastquake and and Marshawn Lynch because he's got to be more the one uh, you know more unique players as a broadcaster that you've been around and, and the Beastquake moment uh, obviously that wasn't scripted and and you could tell how natural it was and and you hear that all the time as you, we did I guess last week when they played the Saints yeah uh, it, it was a, a it was a special play uh, as as good still to this day as good a run as I've ever seen although he had another one. Uh, the year later or two years later against Arizona, that was equally amazing. But for the first one, the Beastquake against the Saints, for all that it entailed, for being us being a 7-9 and nine playoff team, hope we won the division and hosting the defending Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints 
at our house, at our stadium uh, in January. And what is often lost in that, in all of that stuff about Beastquake, and we brought it up last week when Matthew went into the Ring of Honor, Matt Hasselbeck had a hell of a game. He threw four touchdowns in that game. He had a bad thumb on his left hand. So every time he took a snap, it smacked that left hand and, and just it hurt the whole game. He also hurt his glute. So he pulled him, as Mike Holmgren liked to always talk about, yeah, he went out there, he pulled a butt muscle <laughs> and then went out and threw four touchdown passes. And the capper to it was, and I mentioned this, the night when I introduced him to go into the Ring of Honor there a week ago on Monday night, and it's windy and rainy, and it's a terrible night in the stadium. And I said, so he did all that stuff, and then he sprinted 70 yards to throw a block for for Marshawn Lynch in the run that be, that went down in history as Beastquake, and the fans just blew the roof off the place. Because unless you really look at the highlight and look at all of it, there, there is Matthew running down the field, chasing after him, and gets there just about the time Marshawn launches into the end zone for the touchdown. All that aside, it was the most remarkable run I've ever seen. I, I wish there were a couple of little things I could tweak in it, just like you would wish you could tweak a couple of things on a big play. But mostly you just let it happen. And, and then afterwards it's the – the thrill and the excitement of explaining, telling everybody how unbelievable that run was. And if you have trouble describing it, then you know, and the fans know, it must have been a hell of a run. And and it was, and it will go down in history. And then we find out later, after the fact, that it actually shook seismometers uh, in the city, uh, under the stadium, that are there to check for, because we're in an earthquake-prone area, to check for earthquakes. It actually moved seismometers. Just unbelievable. We'll never have another one like that again because there'll never be another, you know, Marshawn Lynch ever again. And maybe we should all be lucky for that. But still, it was a great moment. Yeah, certainly a unique but talented individual on the baseball or on the, on the football field for sure. Yeah. And Steve, we could go on and on, but uh, we're, we're way past our time here. I, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, as a broadcaster. This has been enjoyable as a Seattle Seahawks fan, it's been uh, that much more enjoyable as well to hear the stories, especially to see how this uh, organization came together. And uh, certainly you're a big part of that. I wish you nothing but the, the best of luck the rest of this year and your career as well. Well, Mike, it's a pleasure. And from one voice of the Seahawks to another, I, I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Continued success with your career because it's obviously going great guns. You know how to do a podcast. I got no idea. <laughs> I mean, so all I do is I show up on the computer and talk. You actually have to run the show, so way to go. Well, when you retire, maybe we'll do one together, two voices of the Seahawks. We'll see. Anytime you want. I'm happy to join you. Just let me know. All right, Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Great stories there. Former player, now broadcaster, it is Steve Rabel, the voice of the Seahawks. Special thanks and a courtesy to uh, Cairo7 for some of that footage that we saw there. Also, the Seattle Seahawks YouTube page for providing that for us as well. And a special thanks again to Dave Gorin with the National Sports Media Association for helping connect us with Steve, allowing us to hear some of those great stories here today. So uh, again, thank you for joining us here. Continue watching these, continue to see what great guests we have and great stories of their sports journeys as we continue on in the front row with Mike DeCaro. Have a great day, everybody.